Welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my Co-Editor-in-Chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I am delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Binu John who is Affiliate Associate Professor at the University of Miami and from the Division of Hepatology at the Miami VA Health System in Miami, Florida. Today, we'll discuss his recent article, Ursodeoxycholic Acid Responses Associated with Reduced Mortality in Primary Biliary Cholangitis with Compensated Cirrhosis, which was published online in May of this year and is now out in print in the September 2021 issue of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Dr. John, welcome. Let's begin simply for some of our listeners who may not see patients with liver disease every day. What causes primary biliary cholangitis, which we may refer to as PBC for this discussion, and how common is PBC? Uh, Well, thank you, Dr. Lacey. It's such an honor to be here. I really appreciate you having me on this podcast. So PBC is an autoimmune disease, and it's a rare disorder of the liver. And it's likely a combination of genetic risk factors and environmental triggers. And it is a fairly rare condition. The incidence is about 1 to 2 per 100,000, depending on the region. So it's a little more common in the U.S. where it's closer to 2 or greater than 2 per 100,000. A little less common in Europe, and it's least common in the Asia-Pacific part. And regarding the prevalence, it's about 10 times higher, as you would imagine, because these patients love for a long time, which is good, thanks to the great treatment. And the prevalence varies about 15 to 20 per 100,000, again, depending on the region, most common in North America and Europe, and less common in Asia Pacific. In a nutshell, what are the key diagnostic criteria for PBC? So PBC is typically diagnosed if patients fulfill two out of the three diagnostic criteria. And typically patients present with a cholestatic pattern of liver injury, on top of that, if they have a positive autoantibody that's specific for PBC, and the most common one is mitochondrial antibody. We also have less um, commonly used ones, uh, such as the anti-GP210. But if you have a positive autoantibody, that's a second criteria. And then third is the histological evidence on a liver biopsy that's consistent with PBC. I think the key point here is you need only two out of these three criteria. And because 95% of the patients with PBC have a positive autoantibody, in a patient with a classic cholestatic pattern of injury with a positive mitochondrial antibody, you do not need a liver biopsy to establish the diagnosis. And so the current guidelines say that you don't require a biopsy. The only times we do a liver biopsy is when the mitochondrial antibody or the PBT-specific antibodies are negative, or if you're suspecting a rare syndrome called overlap syndrome, where patients have PBC and autoimmune hepatitis, and you might have elevated transaminases in those patients. But short of that, the guidelines now recommend that most patients with PBC do not need a liver biopsy. Wonderful. Great teaching points. Thank you. And Dr. John, what is a long-term prognosis for patients with PBC? Uh, So like many things in medicine, I I guess it depends on the patient and their presentation. So in patients who present with early onset disease, so if you have no significant fibrosis, say stage zero or stage one fibrosis to start with, and you have good response to ERSO, those patients do extremely well. In fact, their survival approaches that of the general population. The opposite side of the spectrum is patients with advanced fibrosis. 
the, the rare patient who presents to you with cirrhosis of the liver or who are not responders to treatment, those patients have a higher event rate, more decompensation, more liver-related death, and greater likelihood of, of transplanting. And the other thing we've found is, in general, males have a worse outcome than females. Males present at a more advanced disease because oftentimes they might be diagnosed late. So we do find that they present at a more advanced disease and even in patients with cirrhosis, we have recently shown that male sex is associated with a greater mortality. Okay, very interesting about how there are gender differences in response rates. Now, thinking about ursodeoxycholic acid, which we may refer to urso in our conversation today for our listeners, is really considered the treatment of choice for PBC by both the American and the European liver associations. But the data supporting its use is really not overwhelming. Can you provide our listeners some perspective on this? Yeah, there's an interesting history behind this drug. Initially, when Urso was being used, I think a lot of the studies that looked at were smaller studies that looked at short-term outcomes. And you know, with a condition like PBC, it is a very slowly progressive disease. And so when you look at a lot of studies that have small numbers of patients and short follow-up, you might not see differences between patients on Urso who respond to Urso or those who do not respond well to Urso. And so when the early meta-analysis were done, it included a large number of these studies that kind of muddied the waters, if you will. And so some of the meta-analysis that were done early on did not show a difference between patients who responded and those who did not respond to ERSO. Having said that, now we have much better data. There's data from the global PBC study group, which looked at about 4,800 patients with PBC. And they compared patients who responded to ERSO, those who were partial responders to ERSO, which is now the preferred term. We prefer not to use the term non-responders because we find that even patients who do not have a complete response have some response to the drug. And third group, they looked at the patients who were not exposed to ERSO. And now there's clear data showing the separation in prognosis between these group of patients. And patients who respond to ERSO do much better. So the data has now evolved as we have larger studies with more outcomes followed up over a longer period of time. Wonderful. Thank you. And, and before we start discussing your study, what are some other agents that are commonly used to treat PBC, and what's the data supporting the use of these agents? Um, so this is an exciting time for patients with PBC, for doctors treating PBC, because we now have a whole host of new drugs that have come into the market all within the last five years. There's only one FDA-approved first-line treatment, and that's ERSO. So that remains the mainstay of treatment because patients with on ERSO who respond well do very well long-term. We know that. Now, about 30% of the patients are what we call partial responders uh, to ERSO. In other words, they do not have a complete response to the drug. And in that group of patients, you would want to consider a second-line agent. Now, in the U.S., there's only one second-line agent that's approved that's uh, called obedicolic acid. What they found was in phase two and phase three studies, of those patients who did not respond, however, intolerant to ERSO, about 45 to 50% of patients who were placed on a combination of ERSO and obedicolic acid had a response in terms of their outlined phosphatase. So that is the second-line agent that's FDA-approved to be used in the U.S. and many countries. 
Now, the downside with OBD cholic acid is that it's associated with pruritus. And as the listeners might know, uh, pruritus is a very troubling symptom of PBC. And the drug OBD cholic acid itself can cause pruritus. And so that can lead to discontinuation of the drug in a fair number of patients. Therefore, there's another second-line agent that's not available in the U.S., but it's widely used in many parts of the world, and that's actually bisofibrate, which is a lipid-lowering agent, but it also works by being an agonist of the PPAR. It's a pan-PPAR receptor agonist. And there's a lot of data now coming from different parts of the world showing, one, that in patients who are partial or non-responders to ERSPO, about 50 to 60% of these patients have normalization of the alkaline phosphatase with bisofibrate. And there's also long-term data coming out on patients on these combinations for five to 10 years, where the drug is now shown to be associated with improved outcomes. Unfortunately, we don't have bisofibrate in the U.S., but we do have phenofibrate. There's small studies in the U.S. that show that that might help in PBC, but the quality of data we have for that drug is not as good. We also have other new drugs coming out. There are several other PPAR, alpha, and delta agonists in the market now. They're being looked at in phase two trials, but those are not FDA-approved and they're not mainstream at this time. There's a lot of excitement in the field as we are looking at several new agents down the line. Thank you for that great review about agents available for use. So, Dr. John, what led you to this study? A number of reasons why we decided to do it. One, many studies that look at PBC had very small number of patients with cirrhosis. So, I spoke about the global PBC study group, which is a cohort of 4,800 patients assembled throughout the world, but the large majority of those patients did not have cirrhosis. And so, we do know that patients with advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis have decreased response to ERSO. And these patients also are likely to do poorly. Now, the question is, why do patients with cirrhosis on ERSO who do not respond, do they do poorly because of the lack of response? Or do they do poorly because the drug no longer works in a patient who has already developed cirrhosis? And so to tease that out, we felt that we had to take a cohort of patients with cirrhosis, and then compare ERSO response and non-response in that group of patients. And also, we felt that because we had this very nice cohort, a very large cohort of patients with PBC and cirrhosis uh, within the VA system, we thought it would be adequately powered to look at many of these outcomes that smaller studies are unable to look at. Dr. John, for our readers who may not yet have had time to read the September issue, of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. How did you conduct the study? So first of all, we looked at the VA cohort. We have a cohort called the VOCAL cohort, which is the group of 120,000 patients with cirrhosis assembled within the VA system nationally. And we looked at ICD-9 and 10 codes for both PBC and cirrhosis. And here's where it gets interesting because if you look purely at ICD-9 and 10 codes, we find that there's a lot of misclassification. And some of the large outcome or database studies that use ICD-9 and 10 codes have that limitation. We found that a large number of, we looked at 1,300 patients who had the ICD codes for PBC and cirrhosis, but then we whittled it down to 500 patients because many patients who had a ICD code of PBC were mistakenly coded as having cirrhosis 
because of the old terminology, the old name for the disorder, which is primary biliary cirrhosis. And so many, many primary care physicians or other, other providers used to miscode these patients as having cirrhosis when they actually did not. So when we applied these diagnostic criteria for both PBC and then we used criteria of a biopsy or an elastography or imaging with or without portal hypertension to narrow these down, we found that only 500 of these patients actually had both PBC and cirrhosis. And then we looked at these patients from the time they were diagnosed with PBC so they were, the time they were started on ERSO, and we looked at the response to ERSO on these patients. And then we followed them along when they developed the diagnosis of cirrhosis, and then watched their progression after the diagnosis of cirrhosis till they developed outcomes. And we looked at hepatic decompensation, which we defined as either ascites, hepatic encephalopathy, fascial bleeding, or spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. We looked at depth in these patients. And in patients who died, we went into their charts to identify the cause of death. And again, many studies that look looks at long-term outcomes of PBC look at death due to any cause. But we found that though we had 202 deaths in our population, only 96 of these were liver-related. And so we were able to capture an outcome of liver-related death. And so these patients with PBC, we watched their outcome as they evolved through cirrhosis and then they post-cirrhosis outcome to develop a liver-related complication or die from cirrhosis. And then we looked at the risk factors or that predicted their, their outcomes. Wonderful. And you've kind of already mentioned some of these things, but if you could summarize the results of your study for our listeners, that'd be great. Like I alluded to, we looked at four outcomes. So in patients with cirrhosis, as a hepatologist, we are interested in, in four things. One, do they decompensate? In other words, do they develop any of these complications I mentioned? Two, if you're a cirrhotic patient, you're likely to develop hepatocellular carcinoma. So what happens to HCC in these patients? And then the most important, what are the outcome, what are the likelihood of dying? We found that patients who respond to ERSO were about 50% less likely to die and about 50% less likely to die have a liver-related death compared to patients who are partial or non-responders to ERSO. We also found that they were less likely to decompensate. Again, it all goes together because most patients who die, die from decompensated liver disease. Most patients who die have a liver-related death, die from decompensated liver disease. The one outcome we found that was not significant was HCC, and that it is probably because we were underpowered to diagnose HCC. We had very low numbers of HCC during follow-up. So we found no difference between ERSO responders and non-responders with HCC. But with all the other outcomes we looked at, we found that patients who are responders to ERSO uh, it was associated with a 50% decrease in mortality, liver-related mortality, and hepatic decompensation. Yeah, very important findings. 50% decrease is significant. So, and this study had a number of other really interesting findings, but one interesting aspect is that the patients were all veterans and most were men. Do you think that your data can be applied to other patients with PBC as well? Um, so, you're absolutely correct uh, in that uh, a VA population is predominantly men. But if you think about it, our VA population in general is 95% men. And our cirrhotic population has 95% men. So in this population, we had 75% men. So if you consider that fact, 
we did have a lot more women in this cohort than we normally have in most PA studies. The other part to think about is we had 500 patients with cirrhosis and about 20 to 25% were women, which means over 100 patients, 100 women with cirrhosis and PBC, which is a very large number compared to most studies. Having said that, um, you raise an important point about generalizability of these findings. Veterans have a greater incidence of prevalence of diabetes. They're more likely to be obese or overweight. About 60% of our patients were either obese or overweight. And so, and they have a higher likelihood of concomitant alcohol use compared to non-veterans. And so, these are important, important things to consider when you generalize our findings to a population who are non-veterans. And so I think these findings need to be corroborated in other studies that are predominantly women and reflect the, the population of PBC cirrhosis. Thank you, Benu. And, you know, there are so many interesting things in your paper, but one thing was that patients with portal hypertension appeared to receive the most benefit from treatment with URSO. Why do you think that is? Yeah, we found that interesting and fascinating, but it also to us made a lot of sense because when you look at all patients with PVC, if you have a patient with no fibrosis, those are patients who have low event rates as you follow them up. And then you take that as the lowest risk of patients. And when you do a study of those patients alone, which many PBC studies have done in the past, you are unlikely to find a difference because the number of events are so low that the study is underpowered. And then you take the next group of patients with the patients with advanced fibrosis and cirrhosis without portal hypertension, which was the primary cohort in our population, in our study. And we found that in that group of patients, again, there was a significant difference associated in mortality associated with ERSO response. And then you take the highest risk patients. Those are patients who not only have cirrhosis, but also have portal hypertension. Now you're selecting out a population of patients who have the highest risk of outcomes. These are the patients most likely to develop decompensation or a liver-related death. And when you take that population, you find that this whole association with UDCA response is highly magnified when you take patients with the highest risk. So I believe that our findings reflect the baseline event and risk uh, of the patients included in that cohort. So, Bino, although uh, recognizing your study was not designed to answer this question, what about the use of combination therapy for PBC? Should we combine urso and abetacolic acid? Might that be better? So, that is a very uh, interesting discussion because we now have a lot of new data looking at second-line agents in patients with cirrhosis. So, in patients who respond to urso, there's probably little rationale to add a second agent because they seem to do well the outcomes are better. What about patients, and the FDA really approves the first-line agent for those patients. What about patients who do not respond? Well, the current second-line agent that's approved, or obedicolic acid, is now carries the black box warning from the FDA. So in patients with decompensated cirrhosis who were placed on obedicolic acid, they found a very high numbers of deaths. And so the drug now comes with, there's a change in labeling, there's a change in dosage, and in patients with decompensated cirrhosis, uh, the drug should be used in caution. I would say the drug should not be used at all. In fact, it should be contraindicated. And then we, we recently published data using a similar cohort as what was described in this paper, looking at obedicolic acid in patients with compensated cirrhosis 
and we found that the drug was associated with increased decompensation, even in patients with compensated cirrhosis. So I think the lesson here is just because the medication works in PBC, you should not extrapolate that results to patients with cirrhosis because in the case of OBD colic acid, it's not associated with improved outcome. So we do need more studies in other agents like bisophibrate, but bisophibrate does not appear to show a signal towards worse outcomes that we know of. But I would say combination drugs in this patient population with cirrhosis, we have to treat combinations very carefully because what you see as a benefit in a non-cirrhotic population might not apply in a group of patients with cirrhosis. Great perspective. Thank you. And so thinking about all these great results from this study, what are your next steps? So I think we, we are fortunate to have this cohort of patients where we can answer a number of questions that we previously could not look at. We want to look at patients who are AMA positive and AMA negative to see if their outcomes are different. The other thing I feel that this study is the risk of hepatocellular carcinoma in patients with PBC and cirrhosis. Many studies that have looked at HCC in this population have looked at all comers with PBC. As you know, surveillance for HCC is recommended only in patients with cirrhosis. So I think this cohort can help us answer the baseline risk of HCC in this population and might help us identify populations with increased risk and possibly even identify patients who are at low risk that might not require surveillance. So, Dr. John, this has really been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so very much for providing our listeners with your expertise today. Any last thoughts for our listeners? I think two or three last thoughts, maybe a couple. One is we, we presented about 400 patients with PBC and cirrhosis, and therefore we now believe that PBC is more common among males than previously believed. There's data from Europe, there's data from the U.S., that show that oftentimes patients, males with PBC are diagnosed late, they are underdiagnosed. So one thing for our listeners to remember, please consider PBC in your patient, in your male patient with a cholestatic pattern of injury because it is more common in males than previously believed. And the second point I want to highlight is even in your patients with PBC who has progressed to cirrhosis, please do not stop URSA. This is a great drug. It's affordable, it's well-tolerated for the most part, and even in patients with cirrhosis, it's associated with decreased mortality. And so please continue this drug, even in your patients with cirrhosis. Once again, Dr. John, thank you so much, and we really appreciate your expertise here today for our listeners, and look forward to other great research articles from you in the future. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me. 